Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Inside the GM Studio, a podcast all about tabletop RPGs from the GM's perspective and a few little notes for the players. Uh, let's see, on today's show, uh, I'm sure Dave's got some uh, games that he's been playing. Unfortunately, I've got terrible luck when it comes to games recently. I can tell you all about that later, but uh, we'll get to our community questions as well as our main topic Heroic moments and how not to feed a player with an ego. Hmm. I feel like we were supposed to talk about this a while ago. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were supposed to talk about heroic moments a while ago, but some fucking game developer came up with some game that I wasn't really a fan of, and I ended up bitching a whole bunch. Gotta get that but, big uh, dick energy out. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of real-life events, my Savage Pathfinder game is on hiatus for at least another week. Hopefully just one more week. And uh, my game at work uh, had to be postponed because one of the players that was going to play in it just got fired. So we lost that also is a loss of a player. Whoops. So, yeah, <laughs> we got that. Uh, but what about your uh, your games there, Dave? What do you got? Uh, well, still just playing the... Uh... Shooting from the hip, homebrew D and D campaign we played last night. Uh, getting into the real meat of the adventure now. We finished our first milestone, so kind of cleared out the kind of humanoid encampment. I had to go on this whole. I'm, I'm trying to push my players to be a little less fucking lazy about stuff, uh, and nice. Because it's like, they're like, okay, I'm going to search the bodies. And I'm like, okay. There's like 20 bodies in here. 25 bodies of monsters you just killed. Okay, well, I just search them from anything of value. All right, well, what the fuck is value, man? <laughs> like, everything has some non-zero value. Like, can you give me a little more? Well, I'm looking for some gold and gems. Okay, fine, right? That's... How do I know what you want, right? I don't know what you mm. want. You have to be more specific. Or we could go down each. I search this body. I can tell you the litany of everything that it has. But with 20-some things, that might take a long time. Yeah. Or you can just tell me what what it is you're looking for. I'm like, I don't know. Like, my cousin Cody's a pristine example of this. Like, I was like, Cody's the kind of guy that, like, something that you might not think is valuable could be like oh this is like a dire wolf like the alpha male of a dire wolf pack i delivered the killing blow to that guy i'm taking this fucker's pelt i'm gonna mm -hmm. carve it up i'm gonna wear it around like, you know not something that's necessary. i mean it's sure it's worth you know some money or whatever but it's it's worth value to him right yeah monsters it's a trophy right it's a trophy not to mention like monsters and stuff have kind of quirky things whatever this guy has a pipe mm -hmm. this one has a fucking weird necklace of teeth or whatever you know, those things are interesting, but, you know, hey, if you're not interested in them, but I'm like, you realize that it, I want to search for something of value, gold and gems, doesn't cover anything like, uh, for instance, it was like, oh, there's these chests in here after they killed the hobgoblin leader or whatever. It's like, oh, like I opened the locks and picked the locks and I was like, oh, there's a good example of something that not, would not be covered under gold and gems. Like, it's possible that that guy had a key to that shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Story things. Anything mm -hmm. that's like a specific story thing that you're looking for or any sort of thing that you would investigate, right? It was almost like they forgot why they came to this post, which is to learn why the hobgoblins and the goblins and the kobolds are all working together towards some common goal and why they're organized. And just killing them and taking their goal is not going to give you that insight. So are you looking for something on, oh, yeah, I mean, like that too, you know, I was like, I was like, just be more fucking specific about shit, right? Don't just, ah, whatever, how much gold is there? I got it, I got gold, I'm leaving. Right? Yeah, or at least I uh, <laughs> I like when they say how much time they're giving. Like, you know, I want to search these bodies. Well, how long do you want to take the search? Oh, uh, well, you know what, let's, let's take half an hour. That way maybe you can get a little bit of a rest if you guys need anything. Like, okay, well then roll investigation, and I can kind of deduce the DC from there. Yeah, and but but sometimes it's like it's funny how when you want specificity, well, I search this, I search this drawer. Do I need to do an investigation check? I'm like, it's just, are you looking for like false bottoms or secret doors or traps or anything? No, I just want to know what's in there. I'm like, well, then you just open the drawer and look at the things that are in there. It's like, 
Like you don't need to do yeah. an investigation check to see what's in someone's pouch, right? You just open the pouch and count the coins in there. Like, mm-hmm. it's like they err on that side there. And I get it. It's because I just kind of have a, I'm not probably not communicating my expectations in a way that is like, but I, I also sense that sometimes the players are still kind of waiting to be led around. And it's like, and I kind of want this to be more of a, you got to pick at it and investigate things. Sometimes the path is clearly laid out, but there's going to be things that are beneath the surface that require a little digging to kind of get to the heart of it. It's part of your value as a party of, of PCs. If it really was just a matter of pulling a lever, like, why wouldn't someone else do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it went pretty well. Uh, it was kind of dicey there for a minute because I, <coughs> I had them have a skirmish on the way there, I think, at the previous session. So it was like, you know, a half a dozen goblin humanoid creatures. And they got there, and there was an encounter with, like, you know, there were half a dozen goblins outside and a wolf. And then inside, there was, like, you know, a trap and a, you know, maybe 15 others. And I was like, okay, so this aggregate group of humanoid monsters is somewhere in the ballpark of, like, 25 to 30 monsters, right? Like, that's pretty substantive but yeah it looked pretty pretty dicey there because i had this trap and it was like beto went in and he triggered the trap he was in the trap and it hit him and then mike came in and he fucking triggered the trap on accident and then it hit them all again then mike triggered the trap on purpose to do away (laughs) with a bunch of the enemies but then it like fucking he and beto fell unconscious the NPC was there, but he was, like, locked up with two guys, and they were, like, wailing on him. He's, like, the kind of the healer guy. I'm like, great. So now I gotta go over there and heal them, and the other little wizard guy is in the back, like, totally exposed. I'm like, great. So now if he gets struck down with... He's gonna take two op attacks to leave the reach of these monsters go help his buddies. If he gets struck down, he's already fucking hurt. He could just be unconscious, and the wizard's not gonna be able to do damage control enough with monsters on top of him. This is gonna be a mess. And, uh, but luckily it didn't happen, everybody kind of got back on their feet, they regrouped. I thought it was going to be a real, because uh, it was kind of like a divide, like there was the main entry area and then there was like this little hallway. And then the other part of the dungeon had the rest of the monsters in it, and there was this little like area in between. So it kind of segregated and they could kind of plan out and stuff. And so Mike's character was going to, like, I'm going to get up in there like all Solid Snake style and just kind of like slink in and like fucking kill people and like hide away and like kill people and he plugged a couple of the guys and uh dispatched with them but then uh like he was trying to communicate he did the the metagame thing that players do he's like oh can i can i see beto's character and i'm like no he's not he's around the corner still and he's like oh and beto's like oh but uh, but i mean i would have like already like went around this like okay yeah sure you would have whatever you go around the corner now you can see each other and he's like so i'm gonna be like you know yeah like comment i'm like no no words (laughs) <laughs> no words like if you don't want them to hear you you can't talk mm-hmm. so what do you gesture to him you can't communicate with hand gestures like hey wait till i get around this corner and then you come and follow me like 15 feet behind like you can't do that like you need to gesture with that and he's like okay so here i'm gonna gesture and i'm like roll a performance check and then i was like beto roll an insight check right and i'm like okay you don't I'm like you don't know what the fuck he's trying to tell you dude at all He's like, okay, I go to walk in, and he triggers some fucking, like, alarm, and, like, everybody, and they all descend upon him, and I was like, okay, this might be bad, but, but no, they, uh, they dispatched with the, the second part pretty handily, and even though there were twice as many enemies, they just, they had a good kind of setup and, um, laid out, you know, so they were kind of banged up a little bit, but not anything too detrimental, and so I got some treasure, and, you know, I gave the wizard guy a whole, like, slew of books he has this really interesting concept which i think um i'm trying to kind of help him i don't know if you've ever had a player where they have like this character concept thing like this character personality trait so because you like that you want to try to like okay let's try to figure out a way i can give them a concrete in-game benefit from actually investing time and energy in this Mm -hmm. and so my player chris is like a wizard and he's like a real bookish dude so like anytime there's books and everything like there's they found this chest of like a hundred books He's like, I'm going to take all of them. <laughs> like, okay. He's like, what are they about? And I'm like, okay, so they're mostly about this and this, and there's a few things here and there. And, and I'm like, okay, so here's the thing. 
Because if you spend downtime like kind of studying these books and whatever, I'm just going to add that to your aggregate level of knowledge. And so if it's about something, something is specific to something I know you've been studying, and even if it's not, if it's just you do this long enough, invest downtime into researching these books, any history check or nature check, religion check or anything you do, like you can start expecting to get advantage or like much lower DCs. This will have a concrete benefit to you because you're spending your downtime. Like every time the characters are doing anything else, like I just get out a book. I get out a book and start reading. And it just kind of sits there while they do their stuff for like a half an hour. Yeah, I'm just reading. <laughs> like, okay, that's, that's cool, I guess. Uh, and so it's like you don't want to be like, on one hand, it's like, is he just doing this because he just doesn't want to deal with that other stuff? Or is it like a commitment to a character thing? And if it's a commitment to a character thing, then it's a high cost because he's not involved in the other thing. But it's like, my character would do this. I, I like reading. I don't really mm -hmm. much interest in finding treasure and shit, unless it's books and scrolls and things that are like an academic nature. I don't care, right? I'm here to learn. And so, like, okay. So, but anyway, they hit the first milestone, and I thought that, you know, they were going to prepare for getting to level three. Level three is typically that hump where it stops being super dangerous. Levels three and four, yeah. I think, are like, you're kind of safe. You can kind of, mm -hmm. the level of danger, you can handle most problems. And it's once you start getting to level five and six, where it's like the danger gets ramped up again because you're right at the cusp of a tier or whatever. So, oh, yeah, three and four. Three, you get that burst of extra power. And then four is proficiency bump, isn't it? Six is a, I think five or five is a proficiency bump. Is it five? Um, okay. Four, four is, is it the... ability improvement or a feat. Or feat, yeah. But at level, yeah, levels three, at level three, um, like the, the rogue sneak attack goes up. He gets the roguish archetype. Your fighters get their archetypes. Um, your wizards start getting, I think, second level spell slots. So it's like, you know, you start to be able to have more variety in your capabilities. And, and typically it's not a level where there's a big jump, right? Like level five to six, you're likely to start facing monsters that instead of being somewhere between a quarter and a challenge rating of one, you're starting mm. to face monsters that are challenge ratings three and four, and sometimes even five. And so that's a big, big jump in the, in the. I saw this awesome meme on Reddit the other day. I thought of you as soon as I saw it. It was uh, in the case of superheroes of D&D. And it's a scene of Superman and this little kid arm wrestling. And the little kid is like pushing Superman's arm down. And it says, uh, fighter with proficiency in athletics. And then rogue with expertise and proficiency in athletics. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah, Mike has, uh, like, so yeah, Mike has put his proficiency basically in opening locks and stealth as a thief. And so it's like, mm. he's got expertise in those things. And so he's, he's good at them. So it's, there's a pretty good division of powers. And I tried to introduce a character. I'm not really, I don't really have a very well mapped out personality for the NPC. So in the income, the upcoming like levels, I kind of want to start to map out his, his personality, it's easier to endear him to the characters when he is the guy that's like, hey, I know you were just unconscious, but like, I totally just healed you. All right, you're all right. Yeah. <laughs> you're not such all a right, dick. so let's get a let's get a count. Uh, so what this is session three of no notes free form, right? Uh, one. I think it's the fourth session. The fourth session. All right. So four sessions in on a scale of one to ten, ten being I'm enjoying it very much so. One being, of course, this is harder than I thought. Where would you put it on no no note taking free form? Well, it could be harder than I thought, but I could still enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, sometimes you appreciate a nice challenge. Um, some things I'm realizing are a little more, um, a little more challenging. But in general, I think that not having a lot of notes actually keeps the pace of the adventure going a little more, but you mm. sacrifice, you fact sacrifice some of that texture, right? Like I, I used the dungeon tiles to build the map. So I didn't have to like draw out any maps but because of that. I find myself going like, okay, well, what do the dungeon tiles show? There's a rug here and there's, there's this and there's this, and there's not as much texture in the environment. 
as well as like the treasure that the monsters have and stuff like that. Actually, last night what I was doing is because the monsters are such a low level. Um, so you have, say, a half a dozen goblins. And typically you would either use the average hit points or you would roll all of their hit points initially. I like to roll because I like there to be a variance in how many hit points each monster has. So I was like, I didn't want to use the average, but I didn't want to go through the trouble of each time there was an encounter rolling for hit points of, like, you know, anywhere between, like, four and, you know, ten enemies. So I kind of was like, well, you know, goblins are not super strong, and neither are kobolds. So what I was doing is it was like, I didn't roll hit points for any of them. Player comes up, he attacks a goblin. I'm like, okay. Roll damage. He rolls damage. I get eight damage. At that point, I roll the goblin's hit points. Oh, shit. Nice. And I go, okay, the goblin will... Okay, I rolled, I rolled a seven. Okay, you kill him. You know, if not, like, okay, I rolled a nine, then I just... Then I make a note. That goblin has two hit points remaining. That was a pretty good system because it kind of kept the pace of battle going. Um, it it kind of, like, made sure that I, there wasn't, like, these lags where it was, like... You know, because part of good preparation is you would do all that stuff in advance. Mm. Roll all their hit points, and you'd have all these things and all the treasure and everything that they have on them. And hit points are one thing that it's like, you can't just say, oh, well, he has eight gold pieces, and he has four silver pieces, and he has this, you know, bag of fish heads or whatever weird thing you might want to throw in there. You have to, you can't just go like, ah, well, does he feel like he's dead? You know, it's like, it's (laughs) just like, but it turns out, like, as it turns out, like, you, I could just roll their hit points on the fly because I know that they're not going to likely take more than a couple of hits from any given party member. Now, that doesn't work for, like, a big, strong enemy that might have a lot of hit points, but it does work when you're dealing with horde monsters like we are right now, and I find it just kind of keeps the, the pace of the battles going. I mean, we got through, you know, we played for four hours, there was... You know, a trap, there was, um, you know, a fight, then there was, like, a little bit of, like, strategizing, then there was, like, some slinking in, then shit hit the fan again, another fight, then some exploration, some planning, and then that was the session, right? It kind of was a typical arc of a session. And so it kept the, the pacing pretty good, got them back to town, left on a cliffhanger, you know, so that was it was a pretty good arc. But yeah, I would say I probably have to put it somewhere probably between seven, seven and a half. Uh, okay. I'm enjoying it quite a bit, but there are some things that I, I definitely need to refine moving forward if I want to keep intrigue and the texture of the adventure. This session wasn't as much of an issue because when, you, when you're starting a dungeon crawl, there's already dramatic stakes there. Um, and so you don't really need to have as much flavor I probably, I'm erring on the side of keeping the adventure going, so I'm being pretty economic with flavor text and kind of glossing over, like when they traveled back to the town from the area where they were, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I just handled it in like a less than a minute's worth of, of dialogue and whatever, and I was like, okay, that's fine. All right, well, we'll see what happens in another five sessions, or at least until the end of your, your stint, we'll see what happens. But, uh... What do you say? Let's get to the community questions. Sure. Go ahead and roll up that die, dude. Oh, I gotta do a digital one. Uh, uh a one. A one. Okay. Wasn't it, wasn't it twenty last week? Did I get twenty? Yeah, last it week? was. It was twenty last week. Hey, ends of the spectrum. All right. This one comes from Dragonia. Would Epic Heroism be an acceptable rule variant for a small first-time group playing the Lost Mind of Fandelver Adventure? Now, have you read this uh, this variant rule? It's on page 267 of the Dungeon Master Guide. Sounds familiar. All right. So, first of all, the question. I'm DMing a group with four players. For all of us, this is our first D&D experience. We'll be playing the Lost Mine of Fandelver adventure from the starter set. 
I'm concerned about the survivability, especially given how green the players are. At first level, they'll be or they'll have 10 or 12 hit points, facing groups of goblins that can hit for 1d6 plus 2. I'm adjusting the number of monsters in each encounter, but still worry. Healing seems to be very rare. At first level, the spellcasters will have the ability to cast two spells in the entire dungeon. The Epic Heroism Resting Variant, DMG, page 267, seems like it could help, but might tip the balance too far the other way into easy mode. This is the excerpt, uh, excerpt of the variant rule. This variant uses a short rest of five minutes and a long rest of one hour. This change makes combat more routine since characters can easily recover from every battle. You might want to make combat encounters more difficult to compensate. Spellcasters using this system can afford to burn through spell slots quickly, especially at higher level. Considering allowing spellcasters to restore expanded spell slots equal to only half of their maximum spell slots rounded down at the end of a long rest and to limit spell slots restored to fifth level or lower. Only a full eight hour rest will allow a spellcaster to restore all spell slots and to regain spell slots of sixth level or higher. And the end of the question, am I missing some element that would make the party more likely to survive the first dungeon, or would this rule variant be a good way to introduce the mechanics of the game? I'm not a fan of this. Me and... neither, really. Actually, when I thought about it, because that was the first thing I thought of when I started reading the variant, I was like, oh, the spellcasters are going to love this. But even with the extra shit that they have in there for spellcasters, I'm still not a fan. Yeah. And I'll explain why. Uh, a couple of reasons. One, it muddies and complicates how things work at rests. Mm. Okay? Long rest is a night's rest. That's normally not an issue, except when you're talking about leveling. The PCs hit a milestone. So now, they get a long rest after an hour. Does that mean that they can do they get all of their hit dice back when they level? Mm. They get all of their level, you know what I mean? It just complicates mm -hmm. how you're dealing with, it's the same way, the same problem why you try not to have players level at a short rest, because it's like, well, what happens? Typically when you level at a long rest and you've rested, rested for the night, Mm -hmm. It's like, do you allow them to get all the benefits of a level, go up to full hit points, get half their hit dice back, yada, 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 or not? Also, does the, the variant doesn't specify, okay, a long rest is an hour. Is there still a prohibition that you can only take one long rest in a 24-hour period? When, yeah, when it, it doesn't say when it's a night's rest, it makes sense because it's end capping the day. Mm -hmm. You go like next time we're ready to sleep is when we're available to take a long rest. Again, that's not clear. Is it like, so can you take, I, I think there, I would have less of a problem with it if it was like a long rest is an hour, but you still can only take one of them within a 24 hour period. And a short rest is five minutes. That's the way it used to be in fourth edition. A short rest was like five minutes. A long rest was, was six hours or more. So if you have the prohibition where basically your players only get, can get several short rests of the course of a dungeon crawl, but really can only get one long rest, and that long rest allows them to kind of like get the benefits maybe of a level or get their spell slots back within the context of the dungeon where they can take one hour rest, then, and, but they can't, they can only take one because they can only take one in a 24 hour period then that's probably a little better because you're refueling their spell slots. But the major problem I have with it is that it does not scale with level. I agree that mm -hmm. levels one and two are very dangerous levels for players. But, like, you introduce this concept, and when you get to level four, five, and six, you're going to realize, like, wow, every now I have to amp up the danger in everything, and it just makes everything way too easy on the players, and you're going to be fighting that sensibility because once the players get some capabilities... And you can't very well just pull the rug out from under them. We're going to do it for level one and two, but then when you get level three or four, like we're going to go back to normal rules. It's like players need consistency in how the rules are applied. And so also another thing is new players are always very neurotic. Have some faith in your players. Part of the fun of the game is 
trying to figure out how to survive the game when it's challenging. If you completely declaw the adventure just to ensure that your players won't die, then then you really remove some of the dramatic stakes and the, mm. the threat that's there, which is really the essence of the fun. So try to have some faith in your players. Try to do some things before the players get to the um, the meat of the danger to communicate to them the gravity of it. This is a delicate process because you don't want your players to feel so fucking apprehensive that they won't do anything and they'll just be like really... You know, that, that makes them not heroic characters. If they feel like they could die at any moment, they're less likely to be like, fuck this, I kick down that door, I grab a torch off the wall, I throw it in the midst of the guys, I come in, I just start swinging my battle axe, right? Like, they're yeah. not going to do that. They're going to be like, oh, I open the door like three inches and I peek inside. Is there anyone in there? Well, you can't tell. Well, I shut the door, I back up, I hold my bow on it, and I just wait to see if anyone comes through. And you're like, all right, man, I thought you were a fucking adventurer. Try to have some balls. So, but you, you can communicate to them the gravity of the stakes so that what you don't realize is that you're neurotic as a DM, but your players are neurotic too, which means they're not going to go in with like this like big dick energy bravado that, that thinks that they can handle it. They're already like going to be kind of like dodgy. And so I don't think you have to worry about them being all super cavalier that they can just handle any challenge. But if you're worried that they will, this kind of plays into our whole <coughs> conversation today about you know, egotistical players. Uh, new players are hardly ever egotistical, like because they don't know the rules, they don't know the, they don't know what dangers to expect. You know, they they just they kind of feel like danger is lurking around every corner, so they're likely to be more cautious than you're going to give them credit for. And you know, if you notice them getting in trouble, you can guide them a little bit within the narrative to kind of usher them to, you know, hey, you realize you could do this, or you you know, like you're noticing this thing or whatever there's easier ways to troubleshoot it than just making a an overarching carte blanche rule set that makes everything easier and it, it strips a lot of the fun out of it and it doesn't scale past the levels one or two and if you're worried about that you know maybe give them a guide give them an npc give them you know, some access to you know npcs are tough because the, the players can be kind of just led around by them Mm. You know, give them a couple extra healing potions. Give them something like that. It's a much easier fix. To me, it's like appealing to the federal government when you could just ask your city council to change the garbage rates. You know, <laughs> like, it's yeah, like, yeah. why would you do that? Like, handle it at the lowest level possible. And you, you want to build players' confidence and ability to problem solve and uh get themselves out of sticky situation this will pay dividends at later levels if you just give them this world where they know they can't fail your players will never learn come up with clever ideas they will never learn when to be cautious and when to when to be courageous they and, and it really kind of levels out all of the sensibilities of the characters and gives very little room for them to have like personalities and to treat each situation like it's unique okay we know this is going to be a dangerous situation there's a dragon here maybe we need to strategize maybe we need to kind of have a game plan as opposed to a ticking clock scenario where time is of the essence and maybe fortune favors the bold and that kind of situation when you just make everything like super easy the players just don't have as much variance there and Ultimately, it's supposed to be a role-playing game. It's about characters having different values, personalities, and the wisdom to kind of deal with different situations in different ways. And when you neuter the danger of a adventurer, I think you lose a lot of that. And once your players get a little more experience, they're going to be bored to tears with it and probably just want to not play anymore. Uh, you're missing the big question out of all of it, though. What's that? Do elves only have to transfer half an hour? Right, exactly. It creates plenty of other... Yeah, do elves have to transfer half an hour? Like, it just creates so many things that just the variant rules don't really address. Um, like, one of them is uh, if you're using the variant encumbrance rule that don't have strength requirements, how do you handle that with dwarves proficiency? I always handle it 
to just say that their their armor doesn't count against their weight toward encumbrance. Yeah. But the rules are silent on that, and it seems like you don't want to neuter a benefit of the dwarves' racial class. But you also don't want to upend the entire encumbrance prohibition. So, yeah, it's just like especially you don't want to do anything that creates as a new DM. You don't want to do anything that creates more ambiguity in the rules that you're still learning to begin with. You want to have everything as few exceptions to rules as possible because that makes it easier to remember. It streamlines the game. It keeps the pace of the adventure going so that you understand how to go about things. Price, you're, you're worried your spell casters aren't going to have enough spell slots. You know, replace a couple of you know items and treasure troves with a couple of spell scrolls that your uh -huh. spell casters have. You know, give some more potions of healing. You're worried that your you know, players aren't going to be able to, you know, they're going to take too much damage. Maybe give your, have your tank find a slightly better suit of armor or a plus one shield or something like that. Like, these minor things can really change things in a very big way over a long arc. Having a yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want to bring up just throw bonuses in their laps. But, you know, like a, you know, like a clue to how to get out of there easily or yeah if you use this potion or anything that you just happen to find is going to be great for this adventure that they're going on but like dave said help out a little bit that maybe in this smaller altercation or this deed that's been done yeah give your your plate wear you know better armor you know your fighter your paladin you know a good decent shield a good uh good set of armor uh and like that spell scrolls man players these days they don't know the benefits of spell scrolls anymore it, whenever they see them they're just like oh it's something to hold in the bag or it's oh i can put this in my spell book for those of us that read the rules and said yeah. oh this is how it works <laughs> yeah there was some debate about whether that's possible yeah. with me and uh one of my players but that's a complete aside but mm. yeah just just supplant you know the the benefit the the adventure is generic to begin with, but you can you can give your players a lot of benefit by just going through each little treasure trove and bonus instead of making it generic, make it hyper specified to this is a ring of protection that will you know most likely go to your fighter who will get more armor class and this is you know you know make it something that's very specific to your characters don't don't have there be more items or more treasure just make it more sharpened. There's nothing that says that, you know, if it says that there's a plus one longsword and and no players in the group use a longsword, there's nothing to say that you can't change that to a plus one rapier that you know will go to your rogue. Or, or you know, just try to make sure that you're replacing magic items with magic items of similar rarity. If it's an uncommon item, replace it with another uncommon item. And it doesn't matter what kind it is. If it's an uncommon sword and you want your fighter to have a plus one shield that's uncommon as well, swap one for the other. It gets better utility. And the more they have things that are specific to their roles in the party and help bolster their already benefits that they offer, the more pronounced their synergy within the party will be. And that will go for a lot, as opposed to having like a wand when you don't even have a spellcaster. It's like, well, is this really useful to me? I don't know. Mm. And so, just you know, keep that in mind that you know the magic items are laid out by rarity. Don't give them a plus three warple sword when it says a plus one longsword. But you know, trading one uncommon item for another a common, you know, for another, perfectly acceptable way to tailor it and. You know, they might seem like minor tweaks, but you do enough of them, and it'll have a pretty pretty big impact on the uh, on the group and the adventure overall. So, so yeah, uh, Dragonia, if you're listening, the best thing that and I think what we're both getting to right here is <clears throat> when it comes to new players, especially as green as you're saying, don't don't do any variant rules really, unless it's the variant human where that is a very small thing when it comes to other variant rules, that's something that you got to really look into for later games. When people are a little bit more familiar with the regular rules. And that would be my two cents stick yeah. to the basics as you're going in. And then later on, you guys can talk about variants later on. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, 
let's get into our main topic. Main topic. Heroic yeah. moments <laughs> and how to not let the heroic moments make that one player super egotistical. Uh, I've had a couple times in, especially in con games, uh, and this was back when I was doing um, Fantasy Age. I was the very first time I ever did a GM stint in Gen Con when I was doing it for Fantasy Age and uh, and for Chaos. I'm running Call of Cthulhu because in COC, there's not a lot. When you do a heroic moment, it's really really good, yeah. and you can't really not a lot of ego goes to you because you're just happy you survived. You did something cool. You survived. You ran away. But uh, when we were doing Fantasy Age, doing a what, what was that fucking game called? Titan's Grave. Um, I had one player in my third day of games, and he tried to make the entire game about him, about his character. And uh, the way that I created it, I created the entire adventure that they are a group of uh, airship <clears throat> uh, sailors. They were a part of this race, and they all had to work together to make sure it worked out. But this guy just continued to try to make it about him, and he tried to make everything as flamboyant and eccentric as possible. Uh, but when you hear of heroic moments, Dave, when you're writing a campaign and you want something to really stick out, uh, what's the, your first process? Uh, well, I think that typically the way I like to kind of approach that is to think about each character and what makes their characters unique. How do they contribute to the party? Um, like I said, I think that you probably could have kind of, there was like a missed opportunity last night where I think that like Mike's character could have used the fact that he is like stealthy to kind of, he was like, yeah, I was going to like solid snake it and go like, he could have went in there and picked off a bunch of enemies and that would have been cool and unique because he even stepped to the forefront the tank was getting ready to push in and he was like, well, hey man, like I'm really stealthy. I could just slink in there and like fuck some people up and we wouldn't have them all overwhelm us. It didn't end up playing out like that. You know, all's well that ends well, but you think about something like that, setting up a scenario where, you know, a rogue can slink in individually and make everything good for the party. I think the more you put those down to what are the character's capabilities, the other party members aren't likely to mind because it's a kind of a sharing the spotlight situation where you, hey, this is a this is this requires stealth. Mm. You know, this this situation requires skullduggery. It requires negotiation. It requires um, brute force. Someone in the party is well equipped to deal with that. And if you set the sort of tone where, hey, this is a situation for for stealth and cunning. Maybe your character is going to kind of sit on the sidelines, but if the characters know that at some point they'll get the spotlight, they're they're kind of, they're more sitting on the sidelines, like rooting for their their comrade, like just how cool of a moment it was. So it's 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 kind of about getting other people invested in how cool the moment is, because you know that you're not going to let any one player hog the spotlight for, for too long. So I try to orchestrate situations where it's like there is you know, a situation for each character archetype and what their unique skills are. And sometimes you can even have that be, um, this is my thing with you lay out battlefields and stuff, try to encourage movement and interaction. And so that the players, certain things might play to different elements, right? You've got a rogue that likes to hide. There's different areas for him to hide. There's maybe a different area for somebody that maybe wades into the fray and kind of like uses the environment to their advantage. And so you get the players invested on the idea that like this person is shouldering the brunt of the responsibility now, and that's good for the party as a whole. And I'll get my, you know, they'll leap at the opportunity to have their skill sets come to the forefront when, when able and the other person will be, will have an attitude like, yes, uh, it's, you know, their turn. Like, I shouldered the brunt of this responsibility previously, and now I can kind of sit here and just kind of, like, root for him to do his thing. Um, but when you have too many generic moments and opportunities, 
that any given person in the party could be availing themselves to. The more uh, egocentric player is going to gravitate toward being the one that snatches that up, because what you're doing is you're creating a scarcity of resources. There's only so many moments, you know, every moment that I get is a moment you don't get, and it kind of creates this competitiveness within the party where you want there to be this idea that there is an abundance of resources and that some of them are for you and some of them are for other people, and then it's easier to kind of view everything as if you're on the same team, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I sometimes I've had really good success with my home games and really good, uh, heroic moments. And it's usually, I stick around because I started doing it with fourth edition and fourth edition had their tiers like uh, level one through 10 was heroic. Yes. And then 11 through something else was 11 Paragon. through 20 was Paragon and then Epic, Epic destiny and all that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I remember I pulled it off pretty well with uh, Liam's character in when we were playing in fourth edition that his epic destiny, uh, he went with the uh, fuck. I can't remember. It was a ranger one. He was like a, you know, like a wind walker or whatever the fuck. And uh, we set it up that uh, at the very end of the session, Liam was in on it. We thought it was great uh, because he did this thing where he jumped uh, in order to, uh, kind of protect one of the other players. <clears throat> and I told him, okay, we'll make us, you know, uh, make an athletics check. And he did it and he just flubbed it himself. He was just like, oh, three. And I was just like, okay. And uh, so he fell off the cliff and we just called it there for the night as a cliffhanger. A and uh, yeah. And I was just like, you know, well, actually, we did it that I was just like, you know, Oren is no more. He fell off the cliff. There's no way you can survive this. And he's like, oh, well, you know, Liam played it up really good. But you're we like, well, I think we're going to end it there so Liam can roll up a new character and all that. And we'll come back next week and do it. And everybody else, it was kind of cool because at the end of the night, everyone was just like, oh, dude, that was fucking cool. That was amazing. Thanks to Oren. We did this and this. It sucks that he's gone. And at the beginning of the next one, uh, we started. And they were asking Liam about his new character. He's just like, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a, you know, Janassi, whatever about it. He's like, he'll be back at some, you know, he'll be in at some point. But uh, at one point I had him as, you know, as the skies, you know, opened up, the clouds separated as you see the griffin flying in and arrows rain down from the heavens. And you see Oren uh, coming through as, uh, you know, all this description of the new epic destiny that happened. And it was actually pretty cool because everyone was just like, fuck yeah, no way. But of course, yeah. whenever I whenever I come up for heroic moments, that's kind of what I, I always set up for them. But it's always a lot funner when they just kind of happen. Yeah, and, there, and that's a, there's a balance there, right? You want there to be dramatic tension and a sense of permanency and stakes. So you don't want you don't want to overuse something that's a deus ex machina like that, right? Because then the players will feel like, well, nothing I do will ever, like I'm safe, right? There's, mm it's it's fucking legolas and the hobbit all over again it's like well you're never going to convince me that legolas is in danger i know he makes it through the lord of the rings trilogy why is he yeah, here yeah. um but i but i think that that's you know good if you sell your players on it right and you use that deus ex machina kind of sparingly you know or even like some sort of opportunity like you could have also done it it's like, oh, well, like he fell off the cliff, right? And even sold him on the idea of like, we'll make up a new character and everything, and then we'll figure out a good place to introduce him and start the next session with, all right, Liam, roll an athletics check to try to catch yourself on this. Brain. He's like, well, oh, I have like a chance to like save my character, like, oh, yeah. you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, give it like, I, I think to kind of your point earlier about how do you curb if you, if you have these more generic heroic moments where a character might be inclined to say hog a spotlight. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a good way to remedy that is the player who is keen to hog the spotlight, what they're effectively, they're starting with the presupposition that they are more important. So if you want to say, not necessarily curb that, but you don't want to discourage players from doing things that are flamboyant and have flourish and panache you just you effectively have to say 
yes to it. You can, and you can probably curb that behavior and their ego that goes along with it by saying yes to it. You know what? Yes, you are important, more important than the other characters. And consequently, enemies realize that too. You make a big spectacle and make all these like, you know, all this panache and everything, and I am more capable and I am more like everything than the other players. Your enemies will go like, yeah, that guy is more capable. That guy is more dangerous. And there will be consequences to that, like, which is you've just put a big target on yourself. And so you can either tamp this down or rise to the challenge. And if you think that you can handle the brunt of all of that for the party and you don't need your comrades for other stuff, I don't think that, you know, this is, a, this is an encounter designed for a party of X amount of ventures. You cannot shoulder the whole burden yourself. And you might see some value in what your cohorts bring to the table a little bit more if you get smacked around a little bit more, which is perfectly reasonable and rational and follows a perfectly good thread, right? You know, mm. you, you have a Goliath barbarian wielding a giant fucking great axe who's very obviously, like, imposing. You know, they're not likely to go surround and gangbang the fucking halfling rogue as, like, he's clearly the threat, right? Like, yeah. that's not going to happen. But if he made him, he demonstrated in a variety of ways the beauty of playing a rogue is that like by time you demonstrate like how awesome your character is that information doesn't transfer over to another battle those guys are all dead now and you enter a new battle with some new bad guys fresh and they think that you're you like the big tank guy or the whomever is much more of a threat and there's certainly ways to to curb that right you can design encounters in such a way if your egotistical player is is a spellcaster then Put another spellcaster that knows exactly how dangerous another spellcaster can be and what their capabilities are and is prepared to deal with them in a very shrewd way and make them a target, right? Mm. You can design encounters like that over a long arc. Characters that behave in a certain way gain certain reputations. It's part of the value. It should be the most valuable thing to a character is their reputation. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like you can't just have all of the whatever you can't be the best player in the nhl and then expect people not to cover you a little more tightly rough you up in the corners a little bit right it comes with a cost and so you know make that cost evident to them and i i'm confident that they will see the value in the other party members over a long arc it, like especially if those other party members have to protect them have to save them have to heal them they might learn to appreciate them and they might realize that some of that behavior is actually becoming a burden and they might tamp it down to a level that acknowledges the capabilities of their other characters instead of trying to be the person that does everything in all situations, which just communicates like, yeah, I'm really here to show off and I don't, I don't need any of you. And it's like, yeah, but I'm going to design these encounters in a way that says you do need these people because they have value too. All right. So uh, <clears throat> here we go. So you started a game. Mm -hmm. say you know it's some of your regulars it could be me cody patrick whatever uh one of the characters takes the background noble and that they are they are that of a noble they have that noble uh attitude and uh they've made they, they are trying to tell you as the dungeon master that i believe that i am the center of this story now first okay cool cool idea but as soon as you start throwing some stuff towards them that shows that, yes, you are kind of the main part of this story because of your, because of your status. Um, then all of a sudden when things start happening for the other characters, they start getting butthurt because this story is supposed to be about them. Uh, what is your next steps after that? Is to challenge them with some sort of, um, challenge them to recognize that the scope is beyond that of their sensibilities. Um, I mean, all players kind of want to assume that they have like a unique thread. And, and honestly, if you're making a campaign, it should be, it should have some kind of unique threads. Um, I would say that that's failing in my campaign right now. I don't really, it, it's more of a kind of a group dynamic. And there's not as much things for like individual characters. And 
you know, that's contingent on adventures. But, um, you know, I think as long as you can, in good conscience, say that you're giving them a chance to shine and the other players a chance to shine as well, then, you know, I, I don't really think they have any right to be butthurt. I guess it depends on what they're doing. Are they complaining? Are they trying to like shoehorn like certain things i mean the fact is is that there are some players that actually don't mind that someone else wants to be the center of the plot they just they kind oh, of yeah. like be, they like being along for the ride mm -hmm. and so you kind of have to feel that out like is it appropriate you know like how did they get this sense of importance is it because they're they're a noble i'm a noble character and well that's a real easy fix just put them in some sort of environment where that's actually not a huge benefit to them you know maybe maybe they're dealing with a lot of like working class people in some town peasants and stuff who who actually don't value their noble lineage as, as much now they're still a likely charismatic and austere character so you know they can still carve out a pretty good role for them but it's not like it has to do with how much the world that the character exists in ratifies their sense of importance and sometimes the if the characters are particularly reluctant or maybe a little more meek then you want to have the world and the other npcs and sheer coincidence and the world ratify the things that they do that tell them in some subtextual way that was a good idea that was a good call this got good results and consequently if a player's ego is too big you really don't want to ratify as frequently as coincidentally ratify it when it makes sense when the player's own initiative and metal actually would you know force of personality gets this results but don't be afraid to have the the consequences nothing good happens without some sort of trade-off there's trade-offs to everything and so if they're i mean i'd like to think that if a player took this sort of tact and temperament that I probably just wouldn't have a space for them in my game anymore. Yeah. I was going to say, as an example, <clears throat> we're going to say we're on session 10. Okay. Uh, and this is going to be the eighth time that something has come up, usually like uh, with loot or uh, something with like, like that, if you got a reward of any sort. And say I'm playing the noble, I'm a paladin of this family, I have my certificate of pedigree and all that. And we come across a, a magic sword uh, that was actually from another royal family. But I tell the uh, the group yet again, if I had this sword, my pedigree would increase and it would give me the look of the noble that we all need. And uh, as the leader, of course, always putting in that they're the leader, uh, this would be a great boon to our group. But then, you know, say the fighter of the group is just like, yeah, but you... You know, we've been pretty nice about giving you most of the gear or a lot of the loot in order to do this. And this would just be a nice upgrade for me for once. And then just again, like this is a continuous thing that this that I have now said, yes, but it would be much better if I had it and I just wouldn't give in. Well, you have to go, OK, does this happen in a vacuum? How many other magic items have gone to other players in the party? If you're always making the argument that it goes to you when it could go to someone else, then, you know, okay, four magic items have been awarded already. You have three of them. There are three other party members. One other person has one. Mm. Now, generally speaking, I try to design things to the point where it's really, maybe it, it, in that situation, I wouldn't put a sword in that could go to the noble or to the fighter. I will put something that's very specific to one or the other of them. And I felt like the noble was trying to hog all of the magic items. The next one's a wand and some scrolls and things that don't really like suit you. You have no use for them. And moreover, you'd have to challenge the notion. This is why I kind of like in the Curse of Strahd, I was like, we're going to vote on who the leader is. We're going to vote on this. I'm the yeah. leader. Says who? Like. You know, I don't think that there needs to be an entirely democratic process on every front, but it's like, if you're the leader, who says you're the leader? Just because you're the leader, we've entrusted this 
responsibility. Again, being a leader has a lot of benefits, but it also has responsibility, which means you have a responsibility to the other players. And if you're not taking that responsibility seriously, you're using your authority as leader to get, you know, more clout, more magic items, more whatever, then you're not holding up that responsibility and you need to make those consequences clear. Now, I will not intercede in the party. Yes, I think they should decide among themselves who gets it. But you also have to go like, you know, you can nudge the other players like, okay, let's say you're going to acquiesce to the paladin here. You need to nudge the fighter in some way that goes, okay, well, what is this? How does this make you feel? Right? How does this change your impression of this person that is the leader of the party? And what are they doing? Because the whole premise of the game is is predicated at least somewhat on group cohesion. So you can assume that no given party member wants to be ostracized from the group. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, like, that's an opportunity to kind of create some sort of inner party conflict and make the person that's trying to get their way all the time be aware of the consequences of being kind of a stubborn know-it-all. And so, and I'm certainly not going to say, like, okay, well, you whatever you know no it should go to the fighter i'm not going to make that decision for you but if i if i really strongly feel that you know that this other player is being bullied then again i could just make consequences make consequences for it's another noble family's thing maybe that has some social implications maybe it undermines his honor maybe the item is cursed (laughs) maybe it's cursed if the paladin takes it and maybe it's not if the fighter takes it like Mm. i can do those things behind the scenes and there's rather than a a show of force and putting down the gavel as the as the arbitrator i think you're better off to just kind of usher the party in their decisions and just show those consequences in a way that is organic and the player will learn the folly of their ways which is you don't want your party members to not like you because mm. they're there to watch your back and they're there to help you and if they don't like you and certainly if they don't respect you as a fair person who has taken the role of being the leader of the party seriously and then, then they're just not gonna like respond to you getting your way and it's like okay well you know I think that it should go to me as the fighter. What do the other party members have to say? This is usually how it could come to a group consensus. Who can use this the most? And and has there been an equitable dis- distribution of magic items up to this juncture? You know, there's six or six, Cody started this on Twitter. I was like, well, I feel like the new players should get like more magic items. I'm like, there are three magic items in the other four players. Like that's a, three magic items for seven players. It's also it's also the reason that you got, despite your reluctance to do so, this is the exact reason that you got voted unanimously to be the party leader in a group of eight players, which is that everyone knows that you're fair, everyone knows that you will not abuse that authority, everyone knows that you understand the game well, everyone knows that you will keep the game on track and not make it about you. And so... It didn't seem like you really wanted that role, but it was like, oh, it's a democratic process. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, I guess I'm the one that makes the decision. And we left it off where it was kind of almost like you were so reluctant about it that it was almost like maybe maybe the other players might even kind of start looking to Patrick's character yeah. to be a leader because he's just like, I yeah, will do this. Like, <laughs> uh, he is he's, is more authoritarian. Yeah. So it's like if you're going to be the leader, you have to have some modicum of authoritarianism mm-hmm. like to get shit done and to direct and lead the party. But and if you're not you don't have any of that, then it undermines the player's confidence, the character's confidence in you. But you can't just be all that because then people feel like you're an autocrat and it's like, what am I just being told what to do? Like, I don't work for you, you know? Like, you're not my boss. Like, um, so I think really, like I said, the solution is just showing that there are consequences and you can alter what those consequences are if you feel like the, or just allow party conflict to happen and hopefully that like, you know, the, you know, all your ostracized, well, I'll just go on the adventure by myself too. No, you won't. There isn't another adventure for you to go on. So you do that and you're just out of the campaign. Like, mm-hmm. it's just the way it is. And it's like, you know, you, you're you're now outside the border of the scope. You walked off screen. 
you know, <laughs> you're not in this movie anymore, right? Yeah. And so players don't want that to happen. They don't want to have a, a dual narrative. They don't want to be ostracized from the party. And if you let them hash that out, they'll arrive at those conclusions on their own because they have real, it's an inevitability. They have no choice but to arrive at that conclusion. Yeah. Uh, when you were talking about uh, giving in, you know, so if you want to be the main protagonist of this story, there's going to be some shit that comes at you more often than not. Uh, again, in our fourth edition campaign, Rob's character, he worked really hard to reconstruct the the kingdom that he came from. So he became king of the place. Uh, and at one point, the armies of the seven nations needed to come together. So it was the heads of the seven nations nations came to Rob's kingdom to have this like big council meeting. And uh, at first, you know, of course I was just giving it up. It was just like, you are our king. We do what you say. But then he met other rulers and uh, him and the king of the dwarves. I can't remember the name that I gave him, but he was just like, we need your help. We need this from your kingdom. This bad thing is coming. We need you now. And of course he was just kind of like, fuck you. We're just going to barricade ourselves. I need to look over, look after my people. And he was just like, that's fucking dumb. That no, he should just do what I say. I'm like, why should he? He's he's been king longer than you have. Yeah. And that just, just do what I say, right? It's like, he's no, like it's... well, then I'm gonna intimidate him. So he rolled intimidation and he got like a 23 or 25, whatever. This is fourth edition, where a 30 is a nothing. But uh I was just like, the king looks at you wide-eyed, stands up and takes his leave. And he's just like, What the fuck, dude? And I was just like, No, dude, you just fucking told him straight up that you're a piece of shit and, well, and he's just gonna walk out well and moreover you can't just go like seriously you think this guy like the fate of this guy's kingdom is gonna hinge on one role and whether he's intimidated he didn't get to be king because he's so easily swayed right yeah uh -huh. so you know someone has leadership responsibilities it's like okay fate give them give them exactly what they want the ability to make decisions and you go okay you make decisions and there are consequences to any decision you give them tough decisions to make and let them deal with the gravity of the fact that like if this decision turns out very poorly it's on you yeah if it turns out great you get all the glory mm -hmm. you get all the glory all the accolades but if it turns out poorly and if you craft situations where it's like not a clear whatever and you communicate clearly the costs of choosing one mutually exclusive path to me, that's the heart of the fun of any role-playing game. It came up a little bit in Curse of Strahd, right? With the whole, like, Ismark and the town thing. And it's like, you know, you got to deal with this thing over here. And it's like, but, you know, this guy also has, like, rulership authority. And it's like, you can't do both of these things. You can do one, and they both have consequences. And which consequences are better overall? And that's what mm. being a leader means. And on every micro to mid-tier to macro level, and... You know, even on the, the smallest thing, you know, you go left and if you go left, you can't go right, right? And it's like, if there's danger down left and treasure down right, you you get to decide. You go right, all the treasure's yours. You go left, all the danger is yours. And any danger that befalls the party because of that is completely and utterly on you. And you have to deal with the consequences, uh, the guilt, the social ostracizing of the consequences of that, and it will, over time, erode your reputation. And so it's the, the player that wants, like, a meteoric rise to power, like, totally ignores that there is much more tragedy in, like, someone who rises up and just crashes and burns immediately. That leaves you forever ruined as opposed to a character that just kind of knows their station and does their thing. And so, you know, it's uh, those power struggles and power dynamics independent of, you know, it's much more macro than, than the whole, like, who gets the sword scenario. But you do the same thing on, on a variety of levels, just make the players aware of the consequences of their actions don't happen in a vacuum. Oh, I like that. The end, uh, end on consequences. I am actually, uh, ever since that day, back and forth edition, I've become quite a fan of 
making players realize that there are consequences to their position because uh, I know Dave, you're usually more of a, these guys are adventurers. They're kind of outsiders roaming nomads, but I, and a lot of my, if I'm doing medieval fantasy, it usually is a very heroic storyline. So there's always some of that shit in there, but uh, I think that's where we're going to leave it for this episode. Uh, if you guys have any questions for us, please email us at inside the GM studio at gmail.com. Uh, we want to hear your emails. We want to answer your questions. Uh, we want to spout out a bunch of stupid bullshit when we get sidetracked from your questions. So yeah, send them on in. But uh, for this week, for inside the GM studio, I'm Matt. I am Good night.